This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontiers show number 58, recorded on November 4th, 2019. Here in Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity, big data, and the technologies that are shaping the future. If you have questions, comments, or contributions, you can always send us an email, jim at theaverageguy.tv. You can, you can contact uh, that guy over there, Christian, at theaverageguy.tv. Of course, find me on Twitter, at Jay Carlson, and Christian's at Borg Whisper. Don't forget theaverageguy.tv, powered by Maple Grove Partners. Get secure, reliable, high-speed hosting from people that you know and you trust. For plans to start as little as $10 a month, visit maplegrovepartners.com. Christian, still 10 bucks, right? 10 bucks. Plans are, plans are still the same? You haven't changed them? Same plans, same awesome. dream, same we, platform. <laughs> we are back. <laughs> Great service. We we are Can't really super fast. We are uh, we're back for fifty eight. I think August something was our last episode. What's been keeping you busy? Uh, all things um, from engagements to yeah, congratulations uh, on that. By the yeah, way, thank you uh, to work to. Uh, just every all all of the genies seem to when 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 it rains it pours. So, twenty twenty uh, will be the year. It will be the year. Mm-hmm. Um, so lots of moving and logistical twisting and keeping keeping boats rowing at work as well. Yeah, so. yeah. Ken says what? Congrats, uh, yeah. congrats for you. Thank you. Considering we were just in the pre-show saying how home server show or um, home gadget geeks, whatever I call that thing now, <laughs> I've only done 420 episodes. I can't get the name right. Uh, we've been doing that nine years, yeah. and uh, home server show friends before that. So probably known you a decade, and uh, it's a long time. It sure, yeah, it surely yeah. is. Uh, time flies when you're having fun. Um, the rest of high school, all of college, yeah. uh, getting married. I mean, that's pretty great. I, I kind of like it. You're you're, you're kind of like one of my kids. You're just you're in the same age, yes. right? Yes, one of my kids. I'm they're the, they're all doing that too. Yeah, and it's it's even weirder from the perspective of having ten years of YouTube history. Um, <laughs> you go back and you watch, and it's it's like a window through time. It is it it is pretty great. We're gonna spend some time talking. Speaking of this. Uh, 10 years ago, we weren't talking about quantum computing at all. It's actually kind of become a thing. I hear, Christian, different sides of the equation like, yes, in theory, it's going to work, but it's not actually possible. And then I say, and then I hear people say, oh, no, no, this thing's going to work. So is it going to work? I mean, are we ever really going to be able to get to quantum computing? Or maybe is it working today in some secret back room somewhere of some genius? Yeah, I mean, the paper definitely shifted the conversation. I don't remember if the last show we covered the fact that it had kind of accidentally been leaked on a NASA server early, about a month ahead of when it was actually supposed to be released. Um, and then it was finally um, published properly here at the end of October. And definitely what I would call a shift. I am hesitant to use the word paradigm shift because I think more testing validation of assumptions and longer term forecasting needs to be done. But really, um, well, let's let's talk a little bit about the experiment first and, and set it up. So uh, what Google essentially tried to do was take on a classic style computer, the ones you all know and love that do zeros and ones. Um, and specifically one of the 
um, IBM supercomputers that would have taken up to um, 10,000 years, I think it is, to do the same computation. So what they were trying to test is, can they build a quantum processor and framework that makes a classic computing problem that can't be solved in you know reasonable time most would say 10,000 years is not reasonable time to get a answer to a question in a matter of days or hours instead of you know this huge lead time um, and what they found was that using this 54-bit processor they dubbed sycamore um, that uses some fancy quote-unquote processor design and how they build their quantum gates and their um all of the entangled particles that make up the wacky world of, of qubits and, and super strings, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they basically end up proving that they can solve the same problem um, in 200 seconds. Uh, and so 200 seconds in comparison to 10,000 years is obviously pretty substantial. When we talk about what people have been promising quantum computers to be able to do uh, in all walks of life, it has always had that level of dramatic shift of things that were not possible or tangible for classic computing models would now suddenly become tangible, right? So the terror and panic of world crypto is going to be irrelevant and et cetera, et cetera, by quantum. This is really the first actual publishable experiment with results that people can go and look at that makes the assertion that there is quote quantum supremacy in the natural solution of this problem. So yes, it's a real thing. So it's a real thing. Um, I want to caveat though, that it is a very early indicator, right? It shows that a couple things. One, IBM was, of course, quick to say, you know, A, IBM is also a competitor in quantum space. B, they obviously own the supercomputer that it was compared against. And so there have been some assertions that they could rewire the classical algorithm to have it be solved in a couple days instead of the 10,000 years. Um, I think the assertions of that are somewhat ambiguous at this point. What's being hailed, though, as real progress in this experiment is the fact that it now seems to be becoming less of a problem of if it's possible from a physics standpoint and more of a matter of is the right engineering and instrumentation in place in order to have these types of achievements. So I would say up until now, very unclear that there was going to be a driving use case that would allow these systems to become further developed. It seems like Google is well on the track of creating what those other use cases and driving examples are going to be. In terms of how useful um, this particular experiment is, not anything, you know, big headline article. So it's not something where you know, crypto is broken or um, we can now solve some of the hardest, you know, exponential or other types of classic modeled problems in, in nanoseconds. It's nothing back to the future like that. Um, but this lays out a blueprint and a suggestion that for people who have 
consistently doubted the tangibility of these types of technologies moving in a direction where they will start to solve some of those real world problems. I think this is what we would call a shift. Um, now the Ethereum co-founder who, you know, all things Bitcoin blockchain, they obviously are very interested in crypto and what quantum can do for their, their cryptocurrency. He does call this as a quote unquote, um, a, a shift in the computational model and, and one that's here to stay. And uh, I want to read the quote from um, Charles, uh, uh, his last name's interesting, Hoskinson. I think that's the correct pronunciation. Close enough. Yeah, close enough. Yeah, who's the co-creator of Ethereum. And he says, quote, according to their definition, yes. Um, unfortunately, there's a huge delta between what they've done and what's required to actually use quantum computers to become problematic for cryptography, but it's a major milestone. It's an example of the endless and relentless progress that companies can make once they've set their mind to something and they have the people to execute. The reality is this computational model is here to stay. The physics are sound and it's more of an engineering problem than a theoretical problem at this point. There's certainly a lot of science to do and a lot of math to do and a lot of careful programming to do. But today it feels more inevitable than it did 10 years ago about whether a quantum computer will ever exist and be useful to solve real world problems. Um, so yeah, very much, I would say in comparison to last year when we talked about some of the RSA presentations around it and really you know, debunking every single use case where people thought uh, quantum would be at this point and it just hasn't been. Uh, pretty pretty big news. So as you think about it, for the average guy, for the next five, ten years, does it begin, where does it begin to kind of leak in or provide useful, you know, w w in what space? Or is that still too, too cloudy at this point? I think still cloudy where I would expect it to start becoming very useful someday if we can get to that level of fidelity in a quantum operating system is to be able to run machine learning and other statistical models against it. I mean, imagine if you can train very sophisticated models across huge amounts of data in seconds and the ability for your AI algorithm or other autonomous systems to respond has now just dramatically taken a whole new level of scale. Um, which could in turn make them seem a lot more, quote, artificially intelligent. So I, I would expect the problems that are most interesting and broadly applicable to society are how quantum will be able to support machine learning and AI data models. Um, I think some of the other ones like crypto and general, general purpose security are interesting. I would expect it to maybe impact blockchain and how you can deliver transactions over blockchain before necessarily I'd be concerned about it outright breaking cryptology. But certainly, if we're making the assertion that it has the potential to be relevant and useful to machine learning algorithms in the future, it's reasonable to also conclude that we would we would expect cryptology to be challenged in, in similar ways. But do, okay, so we get faster computing, don't we just begin to just up the game then on on the cryptography itself to make sure it's even harder? And I mean, yeah. doesn't that just, isn't that just kind of 
mutually assured destruction on those two sides? Uh, you know, in theory, right? It becomes a chicken and egg problem. It's much like when Spectre Meltdown got released. Like right. you could right. run some quick software patches, but at the end of the day, you needed to buy new hardware in order to root it out. And it wasn't clear that there was a single processor available on the market at the time of the disclosure that fully rooted out the problem. Um, similar scenario here, right? You're talking like trillions and tens, how many trillions of devices that now process zeros and ones that would become quote unquote security irrelevant that have to be replaced across the board. And then on top of that, you're talking about will quantum computers have the same level of portability, stability, and economic scale as a classic computer. So it may be the case that if you buy a $100 million supercomputer, you can crack cryptology someday. But for the average person, they're not going to go buy a $100 million desktop to protect themselves. Um, really, but, really nations, right? At this point, we're talking about a nation state yeah, type of investment, right? It certainly could be you know, along those lines. Um, and I think the other reality here is that the traditional calculations that have been done for the amount of power that would be required to have a computer like that would be so absurd. It's, you know, it's, it's the equivalent of saying if you tried to build a data center back in the 1960s that used the size that it did just to get a single megabyte, um, it would be impossible. You would need like an entire continent. And even then it's unclear what type of power you would need. Um, so there's going to be some economics of scale that have to be factored in as well that, might transcend like it's exclusive for some, but not for all. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's always this ease in period for these kinds of things, right? I think your sixties example is pretty good. Fifties and sixties, even right before we were trying to put a guy on the moon, um, you know, the technology that they had there was super expensive and very, <laughs> we look at it now and kind of make fun of, you know, we, Hey, we landed a guy on the moon with this kind of technology, right? But it, it took years. It probably took, you know, so let's, you know, 1965 to 1985, so 20 years, to really kind of get to a point when we first really begin to see a PC on the desktop. Yeah. And yeah. so, okay, let's just say quantum is today. And even though we think about Moore's Law and some of those other things, we really just, there are really some challenges to overcome. Will we overcome them? Why, well, if we can hold society together long enough to have those yeah. kinds of things happen, right? Um, uh, yeah, probably, but it's, I think it's going to take some time. I, I do, I get, I grow tired a little bit of the doom and gloom, you know, oh, we're going to crack, you know, all of a sudden, you know, cryptography is irrelevant. Well, is it? And, you know, it, like you said, the, the costs are pretty prohibitive. We've always been in a state where the nation states have had a lot of the technology available to them before everybody else did. And then there's some, checks and balances in that space as well, because as soon as that stuff comes out, then everybody knows, right? I mean, we need to kind of, the, 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 the secret of some of that needs to be kept just for them so they can do certain things with it. So I, I too, Christian, as you think about this, you know, just on the crypto side and not cryptocurrency, but crypto, the, the cryptography, the securing of things, right? Um, it, it, I think it's going to, it will grow as we get more, you know, this is the way it's been happening, right? I mean, think about some of the early days of encryption, you know, 15 years ago, maybe, right? And and it's like now we'd laugh at that, right? Some of the cryptography that are some, some of the things we expected to keep things 
secure, it's had to kind of change, right? Change and morph. How, how have you seen, as you've watched that, and you know, we're just talking you know, 10 years of, of podcasting together, how have you seen cryptography change in the 10 years you've been following it? Yeah, I mean, certainly a lot of bugs, which has been kind <laughs> of interesting because we have claimed they are such a fundamental, uh, quote unquote, plumbing of the internet to see bugs like Heartbleed um, as, a, as a prime example be so predominant in implementations kind of shows how much it, effort it continues to take to turn over these code bases and to fully enumerate them. We've also seen a lot of encryption standards break over time as the technology has improved, right? Like um, Diffie-Hellman, not exactly uh, what you're seeing in production anymore, right? So, and uh, you know, uh, a 512-bit RSA certificate, which by no means is used in any deployments today, can be cracked with enough time and patience on a conventional non-supercomputer application using um, general sieving techniques, which try to anticipate what the polynomials are going to be before computing them. Um, so you've seen bits move up, right? Like your average SSL certificate today, it's 2048 bits, 1024 generally untrusted. Uh, you've seen algorithms fall by the wayside. Like how many of you still have SHA-1 certs? No one. Um, and those were only killed a year or two ago. And so um, I would say what we are talking about with quantum, we've seen on a micro scale over the last 10 years as the infrastructure and computation and plumbing of the internet has gotten fatter. Um, the crypto standards have needed to get more robust. And those are both from a security and correctness of the theoretical implementation as well as um, higher bits, better padding mechanisms, et cetera, et cetera. So even with AES, you're seeing, you know, AES CBC was a gold standard for the 10 years that you and I are talking about. And now only in the last six months, it was funny. This is actually a, a average guy side tangent was, I think it was, Joe, we were talking to in the Discord channel a couple of days ago, and we were running um, Cypher Suite tests against the web servers, which is interesting because a typical web server will offer um, multiple Cypher implementations so that different browsers and different devices can use, quote unquote, their preferred mode of Cypher exchange. And so part of good operational security of any web server is that you don't offer algorithms that are inherently insecure because the idea is that if a client connects to you and they use that deprecated or insecure algorithm, they can then, you know, make attempts at compromising your, your keys or your customer's data, et cetera, et cetera. So back to the good opsec the idea of any production web server deployment is that you want to limit it down to the smallest set of ciphers possible and you want those ciphers to be new modern etc so aes uh, cbc 256 has been recommended approved great standard for you know the last few years and now you go and you run a qualsys or any type of other sl uh, ssl test it won't ding you but it will say, hey, here are the specific interests, uh, the specific tests that were run and specific instances where CBC proved not to be as exciting as people thought. 
Um, and it was specific to an implementation with Oracle databases, I believe, although I need to go back and do some fact finding on that. Um, but that aside, um, we really uh, would not have expected that algorithm to go away so quickly. And so GCM and some of the other ciphers for AES are now taking over. So while AES is still the base encryption, yeah, there's different implementations kind of coming and trickling their way through the pipeline. Um, so I would say implementations have changed, bugs have gotten caught, um, cipher sizes and, and bit sizes of certificates has gone up. I think the core concepts surrounding confidentiality, integrity, availability have not changed. Um, I don't expect those to change anytime soon. Those are just what customer needs are. Um, but yeah, we've definitely seen a shift in how robust these things are and how robust they will be. And, uh, you know, do I have confidence that there's not going to be another cipher problem in a year or two? Not really. I think 10 years of precedent shows that it's a shifting target, much like do we have confidence that TCP IP or other based OSI transport mechanisms are inherently flawless? No, but does the entire internet use them? Absolutely. So there's definitely a, it's, it's much like how Intel CPUs were built off of hardware that turned out to be fundamentally flawed at its core with speculative execution. And now we can make somewhat of the same comparison to we've built this entire thing called the internet over the last 40 years. And the reality is that the OSI model is an imperfect world. And on top of that, cryptology is an imperfect world. And oh, on top of that, certificate authorities and how we really delegate trust is an imperfect world because trust is a human construct, right? So it's a, it's it's almost a A implies B that if it if it's a human construct, then it therefore can be foiled in some way. Um, and I think certificate authorities are an example where it's much more on the human side than necessarily on the machine side where foiling can take place. So it's moving, it's improving, but I think we're seeing on a micro scale what we would expect to see if quantum started really challenging the space. Oh, about three or four weeks ago, I was logging into the average guy.tv and I got a security warning that was like, Hey, you know, um, this, this site. And I was like, okay, we, this certificate must have expired. Right. You know, when you get that warning from Google. So I pinged you and you immediately got back to me and you were like, Oh yeah, it's been five years. We need to, we need to update it. When you updated the site and when you think about the future of this, it's one, did things change in the five years since? you had put this certificate in, in effect. And then will there be, do you, do you see over the next five years, anything changing, just a certificate on a website? Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, I would say that um, five years ago you had to, you know, it was a premium paid thing to get an SSL certificate, shell over $30 for whatever the time frame was, et cetera. Now we've moved to, you know, I go back to the certificate authority. Now we've moved to these temporary certificates where every three months I renew and extend a certificate. It's free. I use things like Let's Encrypt, which has become wildly popular. Um, and so, yeah, you can still go buy and pay for the premium huge certs, but ultimately the movement for everyone being on SSL has 
definitely been a paradigm shift. I mean, browsers encoded showing you big red banners if any website didn't have SSL starting about two years ago. Um, and these are things that people kind of forget now looking into looking forward into 2020. But, you know, if we go back five years, browsers didn't tell you if your if your password is being sent in the clear. You had no idea what the certificate issuer was or the certificate authority. And they weren't as easy or as accessible to the average user. So um, definitely, um, I don't know if I've answered your original question, but yeah. the, the no. delta there and just how one goes about accessing crypto has become much more consumable for the average guy. Um, another example is with VPNs, right? Like everyone left and right wants a private internet access or a VPN package for 10 bucks a month or some type of mobile phone endpoint security. And so these are things that people just, A, weren't asking for as much five years ago, but B, are now like rapidly available for the consumers at a cheap price. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I'm paying 30 a year to use uh, Bitdefender's VPN, and it's available on my phone. I can, any software that's running on my computer, it's available. So not just, not a device, it's just whatever I want to install it on. I can use their VPN services to, to kind of make it work for 30 bucks a year, unlimited, no data. Like it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. On the flip side of that, Christian, as we think about the next five years, do you see in that area of, of certs, do you see something or anything coming that will fundamentally change or even just tweak, right? Nothing ever just, I shouldn't say that because we we have seen some massive overnight changes, but you see anything coming that may, that may change that process or make it different? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, nothing in the one to two year horizon, I think, by and large, you can continue to expect some of the trends that we've talked about with certificates and algorithms and implementations. Um, in terms of what the consumer has access to, paradigm shift, no. Um, I think a paradigm shift in privacy and overall ability of leveraging crypto in day-to-day -day life will come in two areas. Um, one will be a more decentralized internet. So you're kind of seeing two things happen. One is like whole parts of the internet are testing their own private firewalls, which is kind of interesting. Um, so it's like internet, except when we don't feel like it. And then it's an intranet. Um, Can you give an example of that? Yeah, so there was an article that had come out recently that the Russian government tested basically blacking out their country and going to, um, quote unquote, servicing all their web traffic internally in the country. So all their DNS resolvers had to fail over and all these other kinds of um, backdrops needed to take place for them to, quote unquote, go on and off the Internet, which is kind of interesting. Uh, there's a ton of other interesting research being done right now in general censorship around the world, um, China being one of them, because they, um, you know, inject all sorts of funky things into packets. And there's plenty of academic papers about what they do. Uh, we call it the Great Firewall of China. Right. But like, mm -hmm. what do they try to keep out by default? And so. Um, based on what part of the internet you're on, you might have a very different experience. And so um, you could start to see some of that behavior, but where crypto comes in is that if the internet starts becoming more decentralized instead of the gatekeeper model, I would expect that crypto would continue to play a bigger role in providing Ethereum-like services. 
um, to the broader internet. And so I would expect crypto to have a big impact there. Um, I also expect it to kind of do the natural plumbing things, like continue to make financial transactions easier. So I think about the Apple card as a good example of this, right? Was there some breakthrough in cryptology that enabled Apple to come up with a sleek redesigned credit card? No, but does the average consumer still see it as some great sign of progress and sanity? Absolutely. Um, so there's a little bit of mm-hmm. fluff factor there as well. Oh, some really good marketing. Does, um, you know, so as a, as a course, as equipment continues to get better, we see this all the time, right? And lately, I think uh, hardware has kind of flown under the radar, even among tech enthusiasts. It doesn't have the same feeling it today as it had three to five years ago. Like in our circles, we used to talk specs and all those kinds of things all the time. And that's largely dropped off in a lot of ways. Maybe there's other groups doing that, but hardware is definitely continuing to improve. Does this change when we think about crypto? Now I'm thinking about cryptocurrency or the blockchain. As we continue to see hardware improvements and those blockchains being able to take advantage of faster processing or faster mining, so to speak, does that, in your opinion, does that change anything behind the scenes? I mean, we've moved from GPUs to ASIC miners to specialized equipment now just for Bitcoin mining. Bitcoin has not fallen off like I think everybody thought. In fact, as we're recording this right now, about 9,400 for block for Bitcoin right now, which I think by now everybody thought maybe, well, you know, is it 3000? We were kind of laughing at it and that's still pretty good. I mean, 3000 is still pretty good. Sorry. Did I invoke? I think I invoked your, your uh, digital assistant there. Um, but it, what do you think as we think about the hardware and the, how does that play on the blockchain and some of those kinds of things? Yeah, pretty interesting. I, I would definitely say that we would need to see some type of fundamentally uh, stable quantum processor in order to jump into the next realm of whatever Bitcoining mining looks like yeah, in a non-traditional yeah. platform. And maybe I, more affordable, right? I mean, it, it, but just in theory. Yeah, I mean, some of the interesting things that Google calls out in their looking forward is uh, supporting generative machine learning uh, as future use cases, which is consistent with the narrative that I illustrated earlier in the show. Um, The second is they describe very specifically building, quote, fault-tolerant quantum computer as quickly as possible. So they're looking for general-purpose devices here at the end of the day, the same way you would with a classic computer. I think that's the ultimate kind of holy grail of where people want quantum to be. Um, And then, of course, they paint, you know, use cases like lightweight batteries for cars, um, new materials, airplanes, catalysts for fertile. I mean, the the whole thing opens up, right? But at the end of the day, it's because people are able to crunch different types of data or move different types of things quicker. Um, With the development of blockchain and cryptocurrency, I don't expect quantum is going to impact it dramatically in the next one to two years. I would expect at a minimum, we're talking five years here. And it would also bake in some assumptions that we have some type of watershed moment like what Google did here about once a year, um, moving you know dramatically and linearly in that direction. Uh, I think short of that, you're going to see things that try to emulate hybrid solutions, right? So maybe a GPU is most efficient for this type of computation, but then an ASIC CPU is most efficient for this part of the computation. So rather than a um, 
only situation. It's not like a and or, but it, it's an, it becomes an, sorry, it becomes an and or situation, right? Yeah. So yeah. you're not exclusively locking yourself into one type of computational platform for your overall workload. You're basically pipelining your workloads to be symmetrically aligned to the best processor that can support that particular computation. And so potentially, maybe you start to see things in cryptocurrency where those things get partitioned out mm -hmm. in order to iterate without having the next big thing. Um, typically that's what you see, right? Like new capabilities come out, we then refine those new capabilities and then we implement them in multiple tiers of buckets so that mm -hmm. we can best align what the computation is to what the capabilities are that are available for it. Well, and, and maybe an application in the machine learning space, uh, in AI, we throw those two together sometimes even though they're different, but, um, to, to think through what scenarios run best in what environments and then be able to dole out those processing jobs, not from a, I'm going to program that to happen. It's going to, it's going to begin to learn in this sense of like, Hey, I can, I can test these things out and I can figure out wh where, what's best and when, and then be able to make some decisions. That's just across two, but there could be multiple ways of, you know, we think about a chipset where it begins to distribute that load out kind of based on its knowledge of what runs best in what situations down to the calculation level. And that all of a sudden that makes machine learning, I think, kind of really interesting in the sense that now we have kind of distributed computing, even in a single data center. And, yep. and so that, that brings some, I think that just brings some interesting thoughts to, I still think we struggle a little bit with AI and what it, everybody wants to call it that, but, and we've talked about that on previous shows, but. Well, and, um, and density of computation is going to become hugely important, right? I mean, hard drives illustrate this quite brilliantly. If you built a data center five years ago, you were going to be populating it with all two terabyte spinners. Now, if you build a data center or you reprovision all of your hardware in place for what the same size of that data center is in terms of square feet, you're populating it with 10 terabyte drives. So now you have five times the capacity of 500% increase with 0% change in physical space. Um, you know, Moore's law has continued to be artificially extended for the last decade um, to the point where the AMD CPUs that are out on the market today are, are seven nanometers. I mean, who would have thought seven nanometers for a general purpose consumer CPU that you can buy off the shelf for a couple hundred bucks. So I expect that level of computational density to continue to increase. And it might not be purely in hardware. It might also continue to be software op optimizations or other general purpose computing techniques get better. Um, but certainly you're, you're looking at multiple moving horizons here of denser storage, more uh, compact superconductors and, and computational ability, larger pipes to move between different data silos or different computational locations that might end up specializing in different parts of your overall needs. Uh, and so the result is that it really comes down to the three basic utilities, compute, storage, network. And that I think is going to drive us in the interim of, you know, quantum coming with a giant hammer and somehow, you know, redefining the game for us. And I think we're still well on our way 
to seeing dramatic improvements in artificial intelligence and machine learning purely based on the fact that utility cloud computing is still moving in that direction of just hyper growth, uh, hyper performance, and always kind of outdoing itself, you know, iteration to iteration. Well, we saw these gigantic in response to crypto, cryptocurrency. We saw these gigantic data centers being built with GPUs. Yeah. And that was not like we, that had not been a traditional data center setup. And, and I remember the, you know, the tech industry kind of making a big deal about it, about, hey, now you can do, you know, now you can come and do these GPU, whatever computations are fast on that. It's super fast in math. And um, so we're beginning to see now hybrid versions of that as Microsoft in, you know, again, driven by gaming. But I think there's lots of applications around this beginning to move their gaming platforms to the cloud. And I think that whole idea then now begins to fundamentally change when we think about processing as a service and what is that or computation as a service. What does that mean when I have different, you know, we just mentioned three here in the last two minutes of CPU calculations, what's happening there. We, we thought about ASIC, the specialized, how, how do we build a specialized chip? In a way, an iPhone is a little bit like that, right? I mean, Apple has kind of, customize that chip to be the way they want it to be. But let's say ASICs, when we think about what's being used in crypto and the way it's doing cryptocurrency, and then think about GPU space. And yeah, those are all forms of kind of similar ideas, but they are all specialized now and highly specialized in some of the way they're doing calculations. Imagine if we now on top of that, we've got a little bit of quantum, but imagine if we have a control that is beginning to on the fly begin be able to send those computations based on what they are and what they're trying to do to get the maximum speed. If that's what's important in some case, maybe it's not. I mean, does all the world's um, computation need to be done at the fastest possible speed? Does all the world's storage need to be done on the fastest possible storage? Right. I mean, we, we kind of think this way, but economies of scale means I think in the future, Things can be decisions the machine will make the decision for us kind of based on our usage of where does it get stored, the the most expensive, fastest, or can it go to cold storage? We Humans make that decision today, right? When we do backup, we choose cheaper, slower, more stable maybe storage. The humans do that. Maybe in the future, that is a machine learning or a, a, an AI service for us that kind of begins to learn what we do and then directs that into the right places for us to make sure it's available in whatever form we need, kind of based on our own internal SLA of like, when am I going to need that data and can it sit in other places? So I, I don't, I, I really don't feel like it always has to be the fastest. There's always some times when that's appropriate, but certainly we've known from just storage, but I mean, think of, think of some of the SSD and some of the future of storage as well. Quantum computing has taken the lead, I think, on on the thought leadership of in the tech world. But man, storage is making some amazing advancements that don't don't get a lot of necessarily get a lot of talk. With you, you mentioned a ten terabyte spinner. Well, okay, that's just a, ver a variation of the two terabyte, of the six terabyte, of the twelve terabyte, right? And yet, there's some great kind of some cool storage things coming when we think about what they're doing in that space to be able to GM a bunch of those things in there and get them back out fast. So anyways, I say all that to say, I think there's some really cool things when we think about those things coming. Would you add anything else to that, Chris? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting that it's not only just thinking about 
what the infrastructure is computing for you, but also turning the computational and the algorithmic side back on the infrastructure to optimize the yeah. efficiency of the infrastructure. So it's somewhat of a self self-fulfilling prophecy, right? It's the, it's it's a, the beginning it's a, of the machines taking over when they can optimize themselves, right? That's yeah. really in, in that, in that regard, it's really, you know, could they, and then, you know, using some robotic <clears throat> mechanisms, could they add to themselves <clears throat> kind of based on their um, need? Absolutely. Could they, you know, that's the beginning of Skynet, I think, is, is right, <laughs> as, as we joke about that. Does this, Christian, does this add anything? You know, we, we get crypto updates from you from time to time. You haven't, uh, the, the show is notoriously crypto week sometimes, cryptocurrency yeah. that is. But any thoughts on anything? Um, you know, the blockchain now is being tested in a lot of new ways. There's, you know, yeah. any, any additional thoughts? I was amused to see that the uh, Bitcoin numbers jumped from like 7K to 10K because China has now endorsed uh, Bitcoin is here to stay. So. Total manipulation, by the way. Yes. <laughs> So apparently we continue to have uh, weigh-ins on whether it will, whether it won't, whether it will, whether it won't. So I suppose if you're a, a speculative investor, um, this has some interesting roller coasters for you to ride on in either direction at your own, at your own success or peril. Um, I don't have a great sense for how long it's going to take for us to quote unquote productionalize this thing. Like mm -hmm. it is still very much a, geeks paradise and not very much an average guy um platform opportunity point of entry etc uh if anything i expect that we're still in that kind of wonky time frame of we just have to wait and see because i think you're going to continue to have to wait for governments to pick sides on this and then derive to some kind of we need to go paperless and we can't have any paper currency anymore well how are we going to do that and then someone's going to make some argument for why credit cards are not the correct way to scale that and then blockchain is going to be everywhere mm -hmm. um i also think that as smart contracts start to become more legally enforceable and verifiable with artificial intelligence there might actually be better use cases for putting blockchain in the middle of things because now you can have the kind of digital validation aspect of a contract and take the human element out of it. Um, and that's very interesting to me. I think that's where there's a lot of promise for the technology still is that it has the potential on the upper bound to scale really well for what I call high quality validation. Right. Um, and so can you trust a human to always properly be able to legally enforce in a thousand page contract across maybe hundreds or hundreds of thousands of customers? Probably not, but a machine can certainly do it, can certainly do it very well. Um, and the thresholds that would be interesting is automated action versus action that requires human review. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an area we haven't even traversed yet, but I would expect to start coming into focus as financial institutions really grapple with this is pretty much a technology that's here now. It's not even that it's coming, it's here, but what are we doing with it? In a Forbes article, we will put in the show notes, what's kind of think interesting, uh, Detroit revs its blockchain engine uh, is the title of it. 
Um, Ford BMW, uh, kind of behind the Mobility Open Blockchain Initiative, Mobi, M-O-B-I, uh, took to the stage to talk about the blockchain's potential to transform the auto industry. What's really, really interesting in this is, again, no, no, no cryptocurrency side, but the, using the blockchain to check, validate, and track every bit on a car from the second it's manufactured to it's being put together, then the life of the car itself, in a sense, I could, Christian, I could know every part where it came from, uh, how it was put together, who put it together. My car could be a blockchain. In a, in a sense, right, or track on a blockchain, right? To think, terrifying. Of, well, you know, interesting uh, enough. I was out um, doing some work on my Honda, and I have an 06 Honda. It's a, it's an older one. It was new at one point in time, but it's showing some age. And I was working and trying to get my headlights replaced. And man, they have Hondas buried those deep in the corners, and it was not like the old days. You take a few screws off and put the lights in, and you were done, right? This was pretty hard to get to. But I was missing some. I was missing some screws in there. And I'm, you know, I'm like, okay, well, I have to go online and order them and whatever. But how interesting it would be uh, if I was thinking along the lines of my maintenance records and some of those pieces and where they were manufactured, where I would get them from, if that was individualized to my vehicle and I could kind of keep track of it. I do think the blockchain is a really good way to do that. It's, you know, when we, when we think about the why or the what's behind the blockchain, that's another one of those, you know, like property records. Those are another one of those when you, you know, think about my housing record. There's no reason in the United States property records are kept at the county level. Like it's a horrifically awful system that is very inefficient. It doesn't work very well. It could be nationalized and streamlined using the blockchain. Is that the right thing? Uh, you mentioned this a little bit earlier. We need some precedent. We need some legal precedent of some things to happen before we can make some of these decisions, right? The courts need to start working through some of these things to make sure, because you just can't go wholesale in, okay, let's do this thing. We're going to need some legal precedent. But I do, I still believe there's some great implementations. And I think in this sense of a, on the, of a vehicle, being able to track my vehicle would have a, that's the way I would track it, including every single part that was put on it. I don't think it's a bad example. Yeah, no. Uh, well, it kind of reminds me of the the analog case of this, which um, is I think of ham radios that are they work with the uh, what's the name of the system? Oh, I should be I should be disciplined for not remembering this. Weger needs to be here to yeah correct um, us on this one. I don't know either. The name of the um, oh gosh, uh, it's essentially a system that automatically reports out the location of a particular quote-unquote ham radio site or a cell site. And so people install these transceivers in their cars that do nothing but emit a analog to then convert it to a digital frequency that plops them on a map so you can see little cars moving around and stations and all this kind of ridiculous stuff. <laughs> um, I am... I'm very depressed that I'm ARPS. That's what the protocol is. Not, uh, not the, um, not a ARP, the retirement group, but APRS. So yeah. ARP, ARP is like, not like your ARP packet, but APRS, which is a 
packet protocol tracking system that's specific to these ham radio relays. So if anyone's ever curious about this, you can go to your browser and type APRS.FI is the website and it'll kind of drop you to where your nearest geographic area is and you'll get kind of this uh, map of all the pinpoints plotted on Google Maps. You'll see all of the different radio towers, transmitter stations, things marked as houses, cars driving around. And these are basically analog ham radio devices emitting their call sign to the nearest relay station and, and con- it gets converted into a digital signature, signature and signal and then stored on a map like this. Um, so I only bring this up because it's kind of really funny when you read a call sign uh, like KN4YPM-9, which is someone's car somewhere in Virginia driving at 54 miles per hour and 67 uh, with a with an altitude of 79 feet and transmitting on a frequency of 146.745 megahertz. Um, and it just, this reminds me very much of an analog way of like, oh, how would I track cars? Well, apparently we've had this system around for decades that can do it and <laughs> no one talks about it. Um, but now we want to use the newfangled you know, sexy thing called blockchain to do it for all cars yeah. Um, or Tesla and cell phones and all these other different ways to ping back signals. Right. I think one of the takeaways though, is that it becomes a very decentralized, fast, potentially cheap medium to do it at scale. Um, And I think right now you look at even the cell towers and other types of implementations. There's when we talk about fidelity of the metric, there still is not kind of a, what I call a digital grid, right? Like we have a United States grid of electricity. We have a United States grid of like um, internet plumbing and all the other things, but we don't really have what I call a data grid. And that data grid would be something that again, traverses the same global surface area, but allows for with very little bandwidth and very little compute power to emit tons of statistics. And I guess most of people are going to be like, hey, isn't that what IoT is supposed to do? Well, kind of. Like IoT is a device. It would be a great candidate for maybe emitting some of those metrics. But when we talk about everyday devices that can emit with very little fidelity, like today, you have to have a cell phone plan to do that. You have to have some type of carrier signal signal coming in. There's a lot of like prerequisites for just getting a device that can be have service, right? Whereas... You know, you can go anywhere you want in the United States and turn on an FM radio and get the quote unquote data plane of FM radio, no matter where you are, what altitude you're at, et cetera, et cetera. All you need is a very little amount of power um, and you can listen to a lot of data and it's analog, right? What does the equivalent look like for that in a digital currency, digital blockchain world? Um, is a fascinating concept. And I don't think we're anywhere close to it, but I don't think that the technology is missing to do it. And it would have huge implications on the type of data models that could be built and collected. I just want to know how you remembered this website, <laughs> APRS.FI. That's yeah. super random, Christian. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm weird like that. So um I actually spent part of my time at DEF CON getting my uh, ham radio license oh. and certificate and all things weird. Um, 
it has mostly become a point of fascination for me to like, instead of, you know, charging into cyber frontiers of the future, I like kind of want to charge into the past and see wow. if we're reinventing the same things. Uh, yeah. Do you have a ham? Did you buy one? <laughs> well, that's interesting. So I, have I bought one? No, but my interest in ham radio is predominantly because of my interest in software defined radio, which mm. is the kind of cyber frontiers newfangled thing of what people did 40 years ago with ham radio. And um, you'll kind of hear the quote from all the old timers that ham radio isn't what your grandfather used 40 years ago. It's cool and it's hip. Well, when you ask them why it's cool and it's hip, it's because, oh, software defined radio. <laughs> um, so when you look like at a lot of the things that are on uh, APRS, uh, as a website, a lot of these things are being supported with um, software defined radio to the point where like you can build a cheap little Raspberry Pi that connects to an RTL dongle and be emitting these things while driving down the highway. And that's an example of something that's low fidelity, cheap economically and has high data impact. Um, so I, I don't really do much in the way of transmit. I, I play a lot with different um, RTL dongles and, and related chipsets and, and trying different listening patterns and, and really honing the radio art, which is what you'll read in any ham operator model that the reason the FCC allows for amateur bands is to quote unquote perfect and mature the, uh, radio technical expertise in the country. Um, and so there's some of that with SDR as well. There's also a, a lot of interesting stuff you can do and receive um, satellite-wise, uh, like CubeSat type stuff and, and other low-Earth orbit stuff that you can get with real cheap dongles. So in all, it's it's a whole new space of just wacky out there. And it's kind of funny because for some reason, analog um, excites me as much as digital does. So... I'm I'm regressing. I'm going back into analog in some of my my uh, free time. So. Learn some things of the past. If you if you go to that site and you click on stations currently moving, uh -huh. which is kind of interesting, right? Yeah. And then you can you can find some really interesting. Like I'm finding some that are moving at hundreds of miles per hour. <laughs> like I saw one moving at 269 miles per hour. Yeah, someone like you do. Ooh. Fix some calibration. I don't know about that. <laughs> you think? <laughs> Do you have a rocket on Earth that we don't know about? Well, it's like a station. This is the funny part. It's like uh, you know, it's it's marked as a like like a physical station, but it was moving at 213 miles an hour or whatever. And you're like, well, but no, Christian. I mean, I do think it's interesting. Like you know, what's old is new. Yeah. And it's interesting. You're finding some. You're going back to it to kind of learn some things. What did they learn about this? And how can we apply that to the new, right? Yeah. And what's interesting is that like a lot of the repeaters stay active now through a service called Echolink, which is analog to digital conversions, right? So if I want to open up a repeater flap out in like Seattle, Washington, all I need to do is um, use an Echolink service to digitally connect myself to the nearest repeater out there and go from digital to analog and vice versa. So it's very interesting how everyone is so buried in their iPhone and whatever their digital devices, they kind of forget how many things still operate and function at the analog scale of things. Like, oh, did you stop and think that, yes, your digital received signal to your cell phone is going over a quote unquote analog surface medium called a wave. Um, so really understanding those principles can help you kind of understand 
you know, have a better appreciation for number one, where we are with technology today and realize some of those cases where what it was 40 years ago is now being re-implemented in, you know, with, with new and different fidelity of technologies. So there's a call sign off the Southern coast of Australia right now going at 199 miles an hour. Nice. <laughs> nice. I wonder what that is. So it's a rocket. <laughs> it's a super speeder boat. No, it doesn't. Yeah. Well, that's an odd speed. Like, yeah. Oh, uh, you know, ocean travel, even land travel at 200 miles an hour, unless you're on a train. I suspect some of them must not be calibrated correctly. Do you think, you think that's what it is? It would, um, I can't you, think of many things that would put yeah. that reading accurately. Yeah. Well, you know, if you had one on a plane, but maybe it's a, maybe it's a, um, maybe it's a small. If you, have one, if you have one transmitting on a plane, I think you're going to have other problems called FAA. <laughs> well, yeah. But you never know. I mean, Southern coast of Australia, you know, they're, they're down there, but what travels at 200 miles an hour? I mean, it would have to be a kind of small, small engineer craft or something like that. If, if that's indeed a real, you know, a real, here's this one traveling it says 269, which is interesting. It is up in, where's this at here? Uh, Western Canada. I I'm now you now I'm hooked. I'm gonna I'm gonna be checking out this site. Yeah, this is a cool site. <laughs> if you've if you've ever wondered why you should get back into ham radio or analog things, this site's a, a gateway drug. Sounds good. Christian, anything else? No, I think that's a wrap. I, I dangerously broached back into analog on a digital show. No, nah, I like it. I like yeah. it. On the home t- on the home gadget geek side, you know, Uyghur's gotten into ham radio. Yeah. Yeah. So this is uh, this has been a topic of conversation over on that side. We probably need to. I had a guy kind of lined up to talk about some in-depth ham radio. Uh, he was busy, so we still have to get back to that. But yeah, we might uh, we might need to have a bridging of shows at some point. Yeah, because uh, there's there's a ton of data dump that we could we could talk about here from no. random random uh, splunkering here in the last six months. Yeah. Um, I will say as a looking forward show announcement uh have a couple guests for a couple different shows that we're going to try and line up for the end of the year so good uh, look out for that and uh hopefully we'll get them done before the end of the year uh joe says you could you could cross look up on the flight tracker yeah to see you know if you wanted to see although those shouldn't you wouldn't necessarily want to see a ham signal operating. i would not no <laughs> right no. at most i would want to see your a cars uh airplane box pinging at my at my receiver what its yeah. call sign is but right right you want to see them in vehicles and things like that so we remind everybody of course uh cyber frontiers powered and the average guy.tv powered by maple grove partners get secure reliable high-speed hosting really high speed from people that you know and you trust and plans start at 10 bucks, maplegrovepartners.com. If you've got ideas, show ideas, guest ideas, whatever, Christian loves to hear about those things. So send him an email, Christian at the average guy dot TV. You can track him down on Twitter at Borg Whisperer. And, uh, and he's already kind of previewed what's coming up. I'm excited about it. We, uh, we, we all have some new things on Cyber Frontiers. We are live whenever we feel like it. It's just basically tonight, we, I literally pinged Christian on Discord and said, hey, Tonight would be a good night. Let's do one of these. And he said yes. So you'll want to follow, maybe follow me on Twitter uh, at Jay Collison is what, uh, and I'll announce. And it's always last minute. So just make sure you subscribe to the podcast player and then don't unsubscribe. And uh, we produce one of these every couple of weeks or every couple of weeks, just the way it works. I want to thank you for joining us tonight, Joe and Ken. Thanks for coming out live. Good to see you guys. And with that, we'll say good night, everybody. Good night.
Good night.